Good morning. Let's turn to the letter to second letter to Timothy. We'll be starting there in this new year. Second Timothy chapter one. I was looking up marathon runners. Do you know how old the oldest person that has run and won the Boston Marathon is? How old they were? Pardon? 90s, wow. 39 years old, Boston Marathon. I looked up, well, what's the oldest man that's won at Marathon? And uh, how, much, how old do you think that is, the oldest man that's won a Marathon? Anybody? Come on. 90. Wow, I like that number, don't they? Actually, 70. I mean, you know how long a marathon is? 26.2 miles. So at 90 years old, pretty tough to do. But do you know last year there was a lady in San Diego that finished a marathon at 92 years old? Yes, it was a woman. And my hat's off to her. That's quite an accomplishment at that age. You might say, well, what does that have to do with today's message? We're going to talk about a marathon runner, the Apostle Paul. But we're going to look at him as he comes to the end of his marathon. And that's what we have here in 2 Timothy. What is Paul all about in this letter? You know, we want to we explore that with an introduction. Paul knows that his time is short. This happens to be his last letter. His dying letter, if you will. And I want us to think about this, that this morning. Now, Paul knows ahead of time that his time's short. So he has time to think about what he wants to do with that time. And we're going to see what he chooses to do with that time. But I want to place that question before you. If you knew that you were dying, and you thought, I'm going to write, I'm going to write something down. To whom would you write? To whom would you write? I think it'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to pick one person, wouldn't you? Because there's more than one person in your life. Family, maybe family members you might pick. Friends, maybe a particularly close friend. How many people would you write to? And the second question would be, of course, what would you write? What would you write? You know, we have uh, wills, living trusts. I never heard of a dead trust, but, you know, where you write down things that you want to pass on to other people, your belongings. Perhaps uh, you have an estate that has to be dissolved or distributed. Those are some of the things that people generally write down. But what about on a personal nature? Perhaps there's an apology that's owed someone that you've wronged or hurt. And you might take that time to write that down. Perhaps you might take time to pick one or more people that you would write a letter expressing your appreciation and love for them. That's something people oftentimes do. The Apostle Paul knew his time was short and he wrote this letter. 
So what was on his heart? There were two things that I could see very clearly on his heart, and we'll tell you what those two things are in a moment. But first, we want to think about his circumstances. We want to ask ourselves, where did Paul write this letter from? I know where I go to write a letter. You know, I have a little office that I made in my front room. That's where I would go. My wife would probably sit down on the couch with her you know, iPad or go back to the back computer. Paul didn't have such luxuries. He wrote this letter from prison, prison, prison. Now, how many people here have been to prison before? Prison, visiting. That, that, I'm including that. <laughs> Thanks, Howard. <laughs> prison. Okay, I used to go and visit a prison. It's not a pretty place. And as a matter of fact, in Brazil, they had a separate place across the main entrance. There was a different prison there, and that's where they tortured people, at least by the description of what some of the inmates that had been there described it. But the other place wasn't a nice place either. In prisons in the United States, when you take an average of prisons in the world, they're a luxury. We really don't have any idea what Paul experienced in his life when it came to prisons. So we want to explore that a little bit this morning because it says something about his character. It says something about his character. When I went to Brazil um, and visited the prisons weekly, there were people that escaped. They had to get over a five-meter high wall, bob wire, dogs chasing them, and guards shooting at them. And yet they wanted to escape, and they escaped. Some of them quite successful. But this is a prison that you're not going to be able to escape out of. And the prisons in Brazil, by comparison, are a luxury hotel compared to what we have here. Paul was not unfamiliar with prisons. If you study his life in the book of Acts, which we've done, you'll find that there are oftentimes he found himself in prison, sometimes for a lengthy stay. Now, when a person is in prison back in the day, back in Roman times, it wasn't for um, a sentence. You know, okay, three years and you can get out. No, people in prison either detained or waiting execution. So keep that in mind. Um, Paul knew his time was short. He wasn't just being detained this time. But he spent time in a Philippian jail. And you have to ask yourself, well, what did he do? I mean, what do people do when they go to jail? The hope is they think about what they've done. <laughs> you know? The hope is that they'll change their ways. But no, not with Paul. He wasn't there because he'd done anything wrong. He was there because he'd done everything right. And he obeyed the Lord. And so when you find yourself in undesirable situations or circumstances, what goes through your mind? What goes through your mind? I'd like to think if I was stuck in a jail, I would do what Paul did, and that's tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I would think somehow God allowed this to happen so that they might hear. And that's what he did in Philippi. He was a testimony, and as a result, the Philippian jailer came to know the Lord and his family. Uh, Paul made good, good use of his time. He was in prison or in jail in Jerusalem, in Caesarea as well. Now, in Caesarea, he was there for about two years, and he had a limited freedom. His friends were allowed to visit. That's going to be a different story, at least an aspect of the story, this, during this letter, but... He was able to witness to Felix. He was a governor. 
to King Agrippa and all those who were present at court at the time, witness to the, um, to the message that he had, and that's the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news that God offers eternal life as a free gift to all those that would receive it. He was in Rome previously, two years. He was under house arrest. Friends were able to visit him. How many people have visited somebody in prison? Raise your hand. Okay. Less than half. Minority. It was going to be different visiting Paul, in which the Apostle Paul was asking Timothy to do in this letter. We're going to see what was involved in visiting uh, Paul there. His time under his first Roman arrest, his two years, is very productive for the Lord. That's where we have the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And uh, interesting, he writes in Philippians 2.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of the household of Caesar. So he was busy witnessing and he was seeing fruit. The gospel was spread through his trials through his unjust incarceration. So Paul was not unfamiliar with prison. He was also not unfamiliar with suffering. Suffering. What is the most that you have ever suffered? Physically. I mean, I know there's a lot of kinds of suffering. There's emotional, mental suffering, or they call that psychological suffering. There's um, emotional suffering. But physical suffering, can you think of the time you were in the most pain? I can. I was in a dentist chair when I was getting a root canal. And they had to cut open my gums. And the dentist says, don't worry. When the Novocaine wears off, I'll give you another one. And I was in so much pain, I was shivering and shaking and sweat was just coming out of every pore in my face. And I was, I think I need another Novocaine. And he says... Uh, we're almost done here. It won't be any good. And he still had to sew me up. So I thought that was pretty painful. That's probably the most painful thing I could remember happening to me. Now, compare that, or perhaps the most you've ever suffered pain. Um, I know for the women, the mothers in the room, I can't even compare to uh, or pretend to understand what you've gone through, even in childbirth. But there's joy afterwards. Here's Paul's suffering. As a servant of Christ, we read in 2 Corinthians 11. Let's go there real quick. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. 2 Corinthians 11, 23. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. Have you ever been beaten? I haven't been beaten since I was a kid. But that couldn't compare to what they're talking about here. Beaten times without number. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times. 39 lashes. That was not uh, anything light. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And they're not talking about little stones like this. They're talking about stones. I was shipwrecked a night and a day. Oh, excuse me. Three times I was shipwrecked, and a night, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. So shipwrecked three times, spent in the water, 
a night and a day. I have been on uh, frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among the false brethren. Can you imagine all the traveling that Apostle Paul did? The dangers that he subjected himself to. I can remember going to Sao Paulo in Brazil on the subway. And I saw somebody's finger reaching for my zipper on my camera. And then I'm looking at him. And then he's looking at me like he wants to kill me for noticing. You know? And... Uh, he was siding up to somebody else when I saw him, and I warned the guy, watch your wallet. And the guy was even madder. <clears throat> and then I looked around, and I noticed this lady that was staring at me. And then he says, what are you looking at my woman for? In Portuguese, of course. And then we got off, and, and I, <laughs> I was with Gavin Aiken. He says, that's a dangerous situation. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, they're trying to pickpocket you. And if you catch them, that girl's probably there with a the knife. She's going to stick you and then they're both going to get away. Well, I looked at my briefcase. I didn't have nothing but books in it, but there was a razor slit all the way down the side of it. So they, I didn't even notice they got their hand in there. You know, Unfortunately, I only had books. This is on the subway. Wall-to-wall people. I mean, you know, shoulder-to-shoulder. Shoulder. Imagine being out in the countryside. No cell phone to call the police, and there's robbers in the countryside. Imagine that. I can remember getting off the bus in the Trans-Amazon Highway, having to walk two hours in the middle of the night, where they had killed panthers, black panthers. And they hide in trees and they jump down on you. Talk about being fearful, <laughs> you know. Paul faced greater dangers than that, lions out in the wilderness. And he did it for a reason. Because God gave him a task to do. And that task was linked to his love and his devotion for the Lord. And when we read what he went through to carry out that task, we get a good idea of his relationship with his Savior, with his God, and the importance of the message. He wasn't going to any, let anything stand in his way. Certainly not dangers. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without without food, in cold and exposure. Imagine what it's like in the cold. Apart from such external things, there is daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. So Paul was very familiar with suffering, very familiar with prison. He w <laughs> it's interesting what's written about his appearance and what he says about himself. He wasn't a man of great stature, small man. It's written of him by historians that he was bow-legged. He was short, bald-headed, and he had a pointy nose. Now, where that all comes in, I don't know, but you wouldn't think he was impressive on the outside, but yet look at this resume. This guy was made tough by the Lord, made tough. Through all the difficulties, all the prisons that he uh, spent, all the sufferings, 
He didn't, he didn't ever consider himself a prisoner of Rome, prisoner of Philippi, prisoner of King Agrippa or Felix. He considered himself a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go back to the book of Acts when Paul was first saved, when God arrested him on that road and he was brought in to Damascus and God, the Lord Jesus Christ, sent Ananias to open the eyes of Paul because he was blinded by what he saw. And Ananias says, this guy, he's been persecuting the church. He's looking for people to take away and to put in prison. And this is what God says to Ananias. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Chosen of God to carry forth a very important message. And in carrying that message, there was going to be suffering. But God would sustain him. God would sustain him. He, he wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me. He also said in 2 Corinthians 9, 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. What is this gospel that it's so important? I am such a person as Paul, the agent, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was held captive to follow through with what God chose him to do, and that's preach the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came from heaven, took our sins upon himself, and died on the cross to satisfy the justice of God. This is what Paul was all about. That message was so important that these difficulties paled in comparison. It's a marathon race, and Paul's coming to the end of the race. Now, I would think at this point, I don't know about you, but I have a good idea what I'm made of. And I think in that situation, I'm liable to say, you know what? I think my job's done. I've already done enough. I'm just going to sit here and die and go to heaven. <laughs> and that would be good enough for me. But not the Apostle Paul. He still had some two things on his heart. Two things. And that's what this letter is all about. Now, this wasn't like the other times of prison that he spent time in. This time he was in the, Ma uh, the Mamertine prison in Rome. Look it up sometime and, and research it. It's not a pretty place. Let me read a description of this place to you to get an idea of just what was his environment like. The circular lower room of the jail known as the Tullianum is named after the builder, Servius Tullius, from the 6th century B.C., this, quote, dungeon was located within a sewer system below the city and could be only reached by uh, lower, being lowered through a hole or thrown through a hole, a hole in the roof or in the floor of the compartment above or the room above went down into this place. And now it's covered by a metal gate. At the top, there is a stone said to have the imprint of St. Peter's head from whence he was hurled down into the room. The Tullianum was the most inner and secret part of the complex and served not as a place of punishment or torture, but of detention and execution for common criminals. 
The ancient historian Sallust said it was 12 feet underground and described its appearance as disgusting and vile by reason of the filth, darkness, and stench. It was in this room measuring six and a half feet high, 30 feet long, and 22 feet wide that prisoners who had been condemned to die either by strangulation or starvation awaited their fate. An iron door at the end of the chamber opened to the Cloaca Maxima, the city's main sewer, where dead bodies are said to have been dumped into the river. Think of that environment. John MacArthur went to Rome and he got a tour of the place and they describe it a little bit different. You'll see slight variations of the, the, uh, the description. He described it as a room about 12 feet deep, lined with stone, circular, 30 feet in diameter. Only way in is through the hole. Of course, sometime in later centuries they built an altar there and so a church met in there. But... Um, there was this door on the side that was raised, and according to John and his tour through it, um, when the place was packed, it would fill between 30 and 35 prisoners. They would open up the door, and the city sewage, this is the main sewage line for the whole city of Rome, two million people, would come through, swirl in there, drown everybody, take their bodies out, they'd close the door, pump it out, and they were ready for the next batch of prisoners. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't die that way. He was taken out. Uh, legend has it that he was taken out uh, beforehand and he was beheaded. Peter was taken out beforehand and he was crucified. But this was the environment that this letter was written in. Prison in Rome was not a pretty place. Not a pretty place. And, and I think of the environment, the smells. We're pretty sensitive to smells, especially when they're that strong. Um, I'm not going to go in to describe them. You can imagine the sounds. You know, in a filthy environment like that, you're going to have people seriously sick, diseases. You're going to have people in pain. People are chained up, and depending on their crime, will determine if they're chained up standing up in an awkward position or with a little bit of slack so you can move around and find a comfortable position. You're on a stone floor. It's not going to be warm. No TV on the wall, no guaranteed one hour a day out in rec time. You got a little hole in the ceiling, dark, dingy, dirty, stinky. And, you know, um, I'm thinking of one more ingredient that's not mentioned in any of the literature, but I, I almost guarantee it was there. We have, <laughs> I think, Andy, you told a couple of people that we have a rat problem in our house. And after this message, i got to go crawl underneath my house and hunt those things down. But he was telling me, Andy was telling me about the rats in San Francisco. Size of small cats or big cats. They are filthy creatures. But they're clever and smart. It's not easy to get them. Imagine that prison had rats in it. Sewer system was right next to it. Guards wouldn't care. And there's no catching and disposing those rats when you're chained to a wall. This was bad. This was bad. Who, were, who was there with them? Common criminals that deserved to die, but some pretty notorious criminals as well. Enemies of the state of Rome. They would be put in there. And they were condemned to die. The prisoners were held at, in uh, Mamertine to await execution or were simply allowed to starve to death out of sight 
Rome's vanquished enemies were imprisoned, often died there. Among the famous figures in history who spent their last days there included some name I can't even pronounce. It's probably, it's about 13 letters long. Starts with a V, but I'll move on. Leaders, he was a leader of the Gauls who joined to rally the Gaelic tribes into union against Caesar in 52 BC. Simon Barjonas was there, or Gior, as it said, the defender of Jerusalem who was defeated by Titus in 70 AD and supposedly, and we, we believe, the apostle Peter and Paul. So think about that. Paul was alone. You know, when, when, when I went to visit, you know, the, those that were incarcerated in the state penitentiary in Brazil, I could go every week. They'd search me, pat me down. You know, there was a process of going through, and I can go in there and, and talk to the prisoners. And then I knew that I was going to be able to leave when I was done with that. Now, think of the prisoners that got visitors in this prison. Luke was the only one with them. He was the only visitor that Paul got during this time. And he's writing to Timothy to come. So you get lowered down through this hole in a room of people condemned to die. Filthy situation, stinky situation. And you're at the mercy of the guards to get you out of there at the end of the visit. And, let, and think about this. People that were in that prison, were, some of them were enemies of the states. Some of them were leaders of rebellion. Do you think they didn't look on suspicion on a visitor coming visit those kind of Who would want to go down there and visit those people? Unless it was somebody conspiring or carrying on a rebellion. You were lo- looked at with suspicion. So it was no small thing, this prison. It was most, no small thing to go visit the Apostle Paul for Luke or for Timothy or Mark for that matter. Visitors enter at your own risk. You might not come out. And they wouldn't care. Nobody would ever know. I'm sure they didn't have a roll list that had to be signed and go upstairs to the big, you know, executives up there. So Paul now was in a different prison, different than all his other times in prisons. And he knows that his time is short. So what was Rome like at the time, and why did Paul end up there? It was the same Nero, Caesar, that most likely six years before led him out of prison. He was there for a couple of years. He pled his case. People don't know for sure whether he appeared before Caesar, but the word of God says you must appear before Caesar. So we'll just take God's word for it that it was the same. But now it was a different time, different political climate. Christianity had reached Rome. Members of the religious sect, they call it, spoke of the coming of a new kingdom and a new king. How do you think that went over in Rome? Not well. These views provoked suspicion among the Jewish authorities who rejected the group and fear spread among the Roman authorities who perceived these sediments as a threat to the empire. So this is the political climate of the time. Christians, what are they plotting? You know, secret society. They meet in houses. We have no control over them. So they were looked at with suspicion for those that didn't know them personally. Now Nero was Caesar at the time. He became the emperor of Rome at age 16. Several years later, Nero had his power-hungry mother move to a separate residence. Shortly after that, he allegedly had her killed. 
There was no end to Nero's ambition. One of his grandest plans was to tear down a third of Rome so that he could build an elaborate series of palaces that would be known as Neropolis. Nero, Neropolis, get it? The Senate, however, objected ardently to this proposal. It had something to do with some of the senators in the aristocracy that owned property and houses in the area that he wanted to demo. So they objected. Exactly what happened next has remained a mystery for nearly 2,000 years, the great fire of Rome. The fire of Rome destroyed 10 out of 14 districts in Rome. Two-thirds of Rome was destroyed at that fire. And of course, you know, they look back, they say scholars now agree that Nero didn't do it. But look, if you propose a plan to demolish large sections of Rome to build up your palaces, and then there's a fire, even if it's on accident, he took the, the blame for that. And he realized that the political winds were starting to change. So what did he do? He blamed the Christians. He let them take the hit. And it went along with their suspicions of what was going on, their fears. And so there was a great persecution, a great persecution of Christians. And now Paul, who was once released, was snatched up and put in this prison. And it was to going to end in his death. He was, he was cast into the prison, his last prison, last letter written, and this was what was going on. Now, what do you think other Christians were doing? <laughs> what do you think they feared? I mean, the government was the world government at the time, and they were rounding up Christians right and left. And there was a great persecution. Nero, it's crazy what he did. He did it for sport and entertainment. He was so deranged and despicable. He would take Christians, throw them to the lions. He would take them and wrap them in animal skins and throw them to the wild dogs. He would wrap them in wax coats, light them on fire to light his evening parties. And some of the Romans felt a little pity, although they felt justified because... So much was destroyed and so many were killed in the fire. So Paul was looking at his last letter, his end times, for him end days, and the Christians were fearing for their lives. In this letter to Timothy, he has two things on his heart. One of them is the Lord's work. The spread of the gospel must go on. What Christ has started and what he had done through Paul had to continue beyond Paul's life. And he knew that meant the next generation. And Timothy was that next generation. He didn't write to a bunch of disciples. He wrote to one special individual. And as we go through the book, we're going to see intimations of what some of the perhaps fears that Timothy had, what some of the weaknesses, what some of the things that he might succumb to. This letter is inspired by God. And Paul had his on his heart to continue the work. He had Timothy on his heart as well. He needed strengthening and encouraging in the work. And Paul felt strongly about that. 
So that's the backdrop for this letter. He's been in his last days. He's going to write a letter, and it's going to be to Timothy. And it's going to be about the work. And as we read through these, we're going to go just go through for the first five verses here and note some things, perhaps look into it a little bit farther than face value. Paul, it starts out with, Remember, he was called a chosen vessel of mine by the Lord Jesus Christ. A chosen vessel. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle means sent one. Here was one sent by none other than God himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was sent with a message. He was chosen by God. It says, chosen, uh, an apostle by, uh, of Jesus Christ by the will of God. By the will of God. It's not something he took up by himself. That he grasped for. God called him. God chose him. It was God's will that Paul fulfill his mission while here on earth. It makes me wonder what my mission is. Does it make, it make you wonder what yours is? When I think of what Paul went through, I think it would be to me personally, pretty callous to not sometimes feel ashamed of myself for how little I suffer for the gospel's sake in view of what Paul has gone through. Each one of us, really, if you know the Lord, you're called. You're sent to take the gospel to those that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. We all are. It's a message that has lasted hundreds and hundreds of years, centuries, no less true than it now than it was then. Apostle sent. Uh, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel message. Life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. You ever wonder in reading this, if you wrote a letter, would you address it like that? Would you start it off? You know? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now, if I'm writing a letter to my son, I'm not going to say, Eric, you know, uh, elder at Calvary Bible Chapel, uh, lead instructor for the Glazers at the IUPAT, DC 16. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, Andy, my son. So I, I, ask my I ask myself the question, well, why is it so official here? Why such an official introduction or opening? And there's a couple of reasons I've, I've, I've looked at. One of them might be is so that we can see it's all for us as well. You know, um, he's writing this letter inspired by God, fulfilling his mission of encouragement, strengthening Timothy, and so that can minister to us in times of discouragement. But I can't help think, too, that he's trying to motivate Timothy. Maybe Timothy's cowering a little bit. He was a timid guy. Maybe he was intimidated by others. Daunted by the challenges. And he's trying to motivate Timothy, I think. And this motivation to me speaks of authority. Paul had the authority to tell him what to do. And, and, and I started to put that a frame my, framework that I can understand. I have a boss. I have to like him. His name's Alex. And if he tells me to do something, I'm going to do it. And a business agent comes in and he starts throwing his weight around and my boss said, do something, I'm going to do it. I don't care what the business agent says. He's not my boss. The one who has authority told me to do this, I'm going to do it. 
if I have a child or a grandson and tell him to do something. Rest assured, if he does it and there's any consequences, I'm going to assume them because I'm the authority behind it. So Paul is about ready to motivate. He's going to be in the process of motivating Timothy to go on, and he's saying it based on his authority as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the life that we have in Christ. And so that would go a long way with me. If God told you to do something, it says God's um, command is God's enabling. Is there anyone can stop you? That's his will. <clears throat> to Timothy, my beloved son. There's the personal touch there. God chooses to use individuals, to use relationships. And Timothy was very near and dear to Paul's heart. We read in uh, Philippians 2. Verse 19 through 22, what Paul has to say about Timothy. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Selfless guy. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. The highest calling a person can have is serving in the furtherance of the gospel. Like a child serving his father. That was the relationship. What a relationship. What a relationship. And he appeals to that relationship. To Timothy, my beloved son. And here's a message that would give me great encouragement. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's a message straight from God. Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's encouragement, isn't it? He's got the authority, chosen of God, sent by God to bring personal encouragement and strengthening to Timothy. Timothy must have been a little bit down at the time, a little bit fearful. And so this would be a timely letter. And what else would motivate him? He thanked God for Timothy. He thanked God. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my fathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So first of all, he was thankful for Timothy. Thankful for the relationship. He considered it precious. And then he mentions he served God with a clear conscience. What's that all about? Whom I I serve God with a clear conscience. Well, in studying, I find it interesting... What would people think if all of a sudden someone got thrown into jail and they suffered the way he did? What do most people think? Hmm, maybe there's sin in his life. Hmm, maybe God's chastising him. Hmm, something's going on. But the Apostle Paul lays that to rest. He said, I serve God with a clear conscience. I'm not here because I did something wrong. I'm here because I did something right. This is God's will. He said from the very beginning, I must show him how much he needs to suffer. The gospel's sake, for my sake. And Paul had it right. But looking at it from the outside, one might be tempted to think, wow, must be pretty bad. They must have something on him. 
They let him go the first time. Now they threw him in there, and he ain't getting out this time. Clear conscience, the way my fathers did. What's my forefathers? What does that have to do with anything? The way my forefathers did. Well, think about it. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. I like the example that uh, the Apostle Paul brings. Hebrews chapter 11. Hall of faith. Hallmark of a hall of faith here. And I want to uh, read in 36 through 37. Earlier in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it's the hall of faith. What people did, you know, placing their faith in God. The fantastic things God did through men of, and women of faith. But now there's a whole different category in here. It says, still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. Yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Tempted. Were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And what does it say about them? Of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in the deserts, mountains, and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So Paul, I believe, in bringing to mind the way his forefathers served with a clear conscience, they didn't suffer because they did anything wrong either. If you study the Old Testament, you'll find out how many great men of God suffered for standing up for righteousness, for preaching the word. And so he was encouraging Timothy, Timothy, don't be daunted by my circumstances here. I'm not. I'm here with a clean conscience. I'm here because God wants me here. And look in the past, and you'll see. This doesn't go without precedence. Okay, so don't believe all those guys that are telling you, yeah, Paul did something wrong, or he isn't who he thinks he is, or he isn't who he says he is. This is according to the will of God. And he says, as I constantly remember you in my prayers, night and day, longing to see you. There's encouragement. There's encouragement. He longed to see Timothy. He prayed for Timothy. Even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Imagine their last parting, there were tears. Imagine there was the last parting, there was great resolve on the part of Timothy to carry on the, the work. But there was a bond between these two men. A bond that is difficult to find. He says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. There's no hypocrisy in Timothy's faith. It might have been waning, might have been waxing, might have been weak, but it was sincere. It was not hypocritical. It was not hypocritical. Hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? <laughs> a hypocrite comes from uh, the theater, wearing a mask. Wearing a mask. Wanting to be someone, seen as someone you're not. That wasn't Timothy. His faith was sincere. Faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. What is he saying here? What, is, what do they have to do with it? Well, I think what he's saying is that, you know what, Timothy? I'm coming to the end of my days, and I'm going to finish my race. And I want to encourage you to finish your race, too. Because you know why? you got a legacy. <laughs> you got a grandmother, and you got a mother, and now it's your turn. 
that the faith might live on. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's our legacy going to be? What's your legacy? I'm first-generation Christian, so I'm starting it. I'm going to pass something down to my kids. They're going to pass down to their grandkids. Some people have generations that have gone before, and they're the child, the grandchild, the great-grandchild of a legacy. It's a beautiful thing. And so I think Paul's setting that before Timothy. Remember your grandmother. Remember your mother. Now you stand strong. Stand strong. So what's Paul trying to do? What's Paul going to do in this letter? I'd like to uh, share an illustration in closing that might give us a little insight of what I think the Apostle Paul's doing in this letter. Imagine that we're at a marathon race. Remember we talked about marathons earlier? Many contestants are lined up at the starting point, but one especially catches your eye. He's in his 60s. It's not so old anymore. But he looks much older, much older. You can tell that his body has endured many hardships and over. The thought flirts in your mind that that old guy could die on the course. You wonder, why is he even in the race? But as the race gets underway, you're amazed that the old man holds his own. In fact, he even pulls in front of the pack. And in your utter astonishment, as you stand at the finish line, you see him sprinting far ahead of his competitors. As he comes across the line, you expect him to collapse in a heap, like racers sometimes do. But instead, he turns and trots back to an early point in the course, where a younger man in his late 30s seems to be losing steam. The older man jogs alongside the younger man, saying, Come on, you can make it. Hang in there. Don't quit. If that really happened... I would want to know. What does this old guy have that I lack? If I heard that he was going to speak on his training secrets, I'd show up and take notes. Clearly, the old man knows something about endurance. He's an example of how to finish well. And I think that's what he's going to do for Timothy and for us if we're listening. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for your precious word. It's so deep and there's so many lessons there. And we think of the Apostle Paul, a good example of finishing strong. Think of the examples we've had in our lives, Lord, seeing men who have finished strong. And they inspire us, they encourage us, but nothing like your word. So we pray as we go through the second letter to Timothy that we might take it to heart that you're speaking to us to finish strong, stay the course, to continue, Lord, that others might come to know you through the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.